Tonight, I want to address the question, can you trust your Bible? The reason for preaching this lesson is due to the fact that I've had several of you ask me over the past several months various questions because someone was saying something to you that made you ask the question. If you had to ask the question or chose to ask the question, it's because someone had planted a seed of doubt. And I'd like to begin by pointing out to you that cynics and critics are frequently found in Scripture. In fact, the very first one is found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. If you'll remember, Eve was in the Garden of Eden. The serpent came to her and it says that he was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said? Now think about that question. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, when you read your Bible, has God really said what is found in the pages of your scripture? In fact, Genesis 3.1, did God really say this? Or 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? You have to realize that in Peter's day, just like it was in the very beginning, there are people who are going to scoff because they walk in their own lust, are going to plant seeds of doubt in your mind. But you see, there are still critics today. Some are subtle and some are not so subtle. For instance, the one that has perhaps been mentioned more to me over the past four or five years is people will say, Brother Tony, I watched a special episode on the History Channel Some of you will mention one that's been airing recently called The Lost Books of the Bible. And there is the implication in that that you do not have God's Word in your hands. That somehow someone has deprived you of what is real Scripture and you may learn something there that you need to know. Let me be very direct and very blunt Any television network that promotes ancient aliens as history cannot be trusted. So I want to tell you, if you watch something on the History Channel, take it with not just a grain of salt, but a whole block of salt. Uh, So um, I want you to understand, um, some of the people that they interview are just absolute nuts. And I'm trying to be kind. But not only that, many times you will encounter it in higher education. When I was attending college at a state school in Alabama, I was taking a class in physics. Had a teacher from the University of Alabama came and drove over to teach the class. He did not believe in God. He did not believe in creation. He definitely did not believe in the Bible. And he called what was written in the book of Genesis, a book of myths. And the idea is is that you can't depend upon your Bible. In fact, one of the men that is so well known 
is a man by the name of Dr. Bart Ehrman. He teaches at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is the head of their studies of religion. And what I find interesting is you've got an atheist teaching religion. Seems to be a little bit uh, out of sorts to me. In fact, I've taken several courses of what is part of what's known as the great courses. They're college-level classes taught by various important professors from all over the country. You buy these courses and you go through them. Some of them are 24 lessons, some are 36, and some are even more. Some of the classes have been exceptionally great. I bought one a few years ago by Dr. Bard Ehrman on Gnosticism. It didn't take me long to realize this man made a mockery of the scriptures. And uh, I was asked to review the class for the learning company. And I told him, I said, I would compare that to Mahmoud Adinejad, the president of Iran, as telling us a little bit about Israel's history. You know, here's a man antagonistic to religion, and yet you got him teaching religious courses. But now let me point out to you, there's several areas of concern. Some of these are things that some of you have raised to me. How can you be sure that you have what you have is the inspired word, that it was given by God? How can I be sure that when I open my Bible and I read that, that I'm actually reading something that came from God? Number two, how can you be the sure that the Bible you have is all that God intended? Are there other books that ought to be there? Number three, how can you be sure that the Bible you now have has not been changed by time and, more importantly, translation? Well, for just a few minutes, here's what I'd like for us to explore. Uh, let's, let me give you a couple of quotes, and then we'll talk about some of that. This comes from the Da Vinci Code, and I've used this part before, but I, I wanted to remind you of it. This is found on page 231. The Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not God. It has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of this book. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. The fundamental irony of Christianity, the Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan emperor Constantine the Great. That's all found on page 231. You skip over three more pages to page 234. Fortunately for historians, some of the gospels that Constantine attempted to eradicate managed to survive. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s hidden in a cave near Qumran in the Judean desert. And of course, the Coptic scrolls in 1945 at Nag Hammadi. I'd love to just be able to deal with all the error that's in that one quote. There's so much about that is totally incorrect. Number one, I'll point out to you, Constantine did not, he did not decide what books are found in your Bible. Number two, he leaves the impression that there were 80 Gospels found, and many of them found at Qumran. I've been to Qumran several times. Nothing was found there but Old Testament Scriptures, not the New Testament Gospels. 
and some of their own writings. You have to realize that what this man is trying to do is to get people to believe that there is some sort of conspiracy with regards to your Bible. But there are even organized religions. The Latter-day Saints, known as the Mormons, and their articles of faith, if you read them, in the very first article, what we would call chapter 1, verse 8, says, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is correctly translated. If you ever have some of them come to your house and you begin to prove them to be wrong, many times they will say, but now we don't believe that that's correctly translated to leave some sort of doubt there. But one of the more challenging is one found in Newsweek magazine in 2014. In fact, just about a couple of years ago. It's written by Kurt Eisenwald, and here's what he said, and there, this again is just full of error. Indeed, for hundreds of years after the death of Jesus, groups adopted radically conflicting writings about the details of the life and the meaning of his ministry and murdered those who disagreed. For many centuries, Christianity was first a battle of books and then a battle of blood. The reason in large part is, was that there was no universally accepted manuscripts that were set out what it meant to be a Christian. So most sects had their own Gospels. There was the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Simon Peter, the Gospel of Philip, and the Gospel of Barnabas. One sect of Christianity, the Gnostics, believed that the disciple Thomas was not only Jesus' twin brother, but also the founder of churches across Asia. And that was found in Newsweek. And so I know that people's minds are being bounced back and forth. They're saying, well, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the gospel of Philip, the gospel of Thomas, are all of these somehow wrong? Well, we want to talk about the text of the Bible, the canon, and the translation. I'm not going to be able to go in great detail. I'll be glad to try to answer more questions later if you wish specifically about something. The first question will arise is, do we have any of the original manuscripts, the original documents that were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, or John? And the answer is no. We don't have those manuscripts. But that's not a problem. Because we don't have the manuscripts for any of the ancient books that were written in Greek. We don't have manuscripts of all those books that were written by, for instance, people like Aristotle and Socrates and, and other men such as that. Homer's Iliad. We don't have manuscripts for that as well. There were copies that were often made and destroyed even in biblical times. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Do you remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he saw the children of Israel falling and worshiping before the calf? In Exodus 32 verse 19, and soon it was he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot. He cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And you say, well, if he broke the Ten Commandments that were written on tablets of stone... What went inside the Ark of the Covenant? Well, you go to chapter 34, verse 1. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words which were on the first tablets which you broke. So there were replacements. Did that change God's word from the first time that they were written in Exodus 20, verses 1 and following, to the time that they were rewritten in chapter 34? Not at all. In the book of Jeremiah, you'll remember there's a king by the name of Jehoiakim. And Jeremiah was commanded by God to write not only a record, but he was also commanded to write prophecies. When Jehoiakim heard these prophecies, he didn't like what it had to say. In Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 4, Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. Verse 23, And it happened when Jehudai had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife, cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Jeremiah wrote a manuscript. Jehoiakim threw it in the fire. He burned it up. Verse 28, God says, Take yet another scroll, write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, has burned. So you have God's word being given, but you have manuscripts being destroyed, even in biblical times. The truth is, God's word will not pass away. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, and Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God said, my word will not return to me void. It will accomplish what I please and prosper where I send it. For a moment or two, let's talk about the Old Testament. Can you be confident that that Old Testament you have is accurate? Some of the details go all the way back to the very creation of man. Moses, writing the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, wrote them thousands of years ago. Can I be sure that what I have is correct? You see, many critics have argued against the accuracy of those texts. In fact, just a little over a hundred years ago, there was a group of people in Germany known as German Rationalists. And what they did, they tried to sow seeds of doubt among everyone saying, you've got to understand the oldest manuscript we have of the Old Testament is from 900 A.D. And they were saying, everybody just changed it as it went along. And the people that were charged with copying these manuscripts were known as Masoretes. That's the reason why they call it the Masoretic Text. These were produced by careful scribes. When a mistake was made in a document, it had to be destroyed. When I was in typing class back in the early 70s, the teachers had a policy. You could have three erasures per page. For you my age and older, you know what that means. It means if you made a mistake, you could erase once, you could erase twice, you could erase three times after the third time you had to throw the paper away and type it all over again. My waste can was full. I could, I could type fast, but not good, not well. 
They made a mistake. They had to destroy the whole manuscript. When a copy was worn out, it was destroyed and replaced out of respect. And so the oldest manuscript they had at that time was 900 A.D. They were not allowed to write from memory, and they even had to count the number of letters per line to be sure that they were accurate. Well, is it accurate? There's something happened in 1947. I've already alluded to it earlier, the Dead Sea Scrolls. A little shepherd boy was throwing rocks and hit a jar inside of the cave four there at Qumran. Went in to find what was in there and there were manuscripts. They brought them out and they found out these manuscripts date to 100 B.C. That's a thousand years older than any manuscript that we possessed at the time. And you know what they found out? Word for word, letter for letter, line for line, the manuscripts were accurate. That destroyed the argument of the critics of the Bible. It wasn't just that, but numerous archaeological uh, evidences have been discovered that have further confirmed the accuracy. You had also other things to compare with it. There was a translation that was done about 100 B.C. known as the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and you can see the amazing harmony between them. It says Psalm 100 and verse 5 says, His truth endures to all generations. But what about your New Testament? What about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Those four accounts. Why don't we include the ones supposedly by Thomas, the ones supposedly by Mary Magdalene? Well, you had early translations, early versions. There was the Syriac, a Syrian translation. Uh, there was also the Coptic, which was an Egyptian. In fact, the Coptic, there's over 9,300 manuscripts of that. Then you have the Latin Vulgate that was translated, and there's over 10,000 manuscripts of it. You have over 36,000 quotations from what's called the Church Fathers, those people who lived from the early part of the 2nd century up to about the 3rd or 4th century. They'd quote scripture, and you could recognize it. You have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, and you see the amazing harmony between these, and you say, well, I don't think I have to worry about the text. There's virtual certainty that we have the identical text that was found and those original autographs. So when you look at your Bible, is the text that's there in that Bible correct? Absolutely it is. You should be able to trust it without fear and without favor. That brings me to the second part of this lesson, and that is the canon. How do we know that we have all that God wanted and only what God wanted in our Bibles? Why 66 books? Why 39 in the old? Why 27 in the new? Why only those? Well, the word canon, which we spell with a C in English, is from the Greek word canon, spelled with a K, and it means a rod or a measuring staff. The idea is, is that this is the standard by which everything else is measured. There's a book that I've got called A General Introduction to the Bible by Geisler and Nix. 
which made a really good statement, which I thought I couldn't improve upon, which says, Canonicity is determined by God. A book is not inspired because men made it canonical. It is canonical because God inspired it. So that when you look, for instance, at the book of Jeremiah, why is Jeremiah in the Bible? It's not because some men, someone said, hey, I think, I'll, I think we ought to put that book in there. And therefore, we're going to call it God's Word. No, it was God's Word, and that's the reason why it was included. Well, how did all this take place? How did people ascertain which books belong there? You know, that's a real interesting process. You have to remember that when Paul wrote a letter to Corinth, that was a letter sent to Corinth. When he wrote one to Colossae, there was a letter that went to Colossae. When there was one sent to Ephesus, it was sent to the Ephesians. And what would take place is people wanted their own copies of that and they made their copies. And the people who were in Colossae read the ones that were sent to the Ephesians and the Laodiceans, by the way. And all these manuscripts were then collected together and you had Paul's letters and you had Luke's record of both the life of Christ and the beginning of the early church. That's the book of Luke's and Acts. You had the writings of the Apostle John, the three letters, general letters he wrote, the Gospel and the book of Revelation. And people began to say, okay, I've got my letters combined now into one group. And they asked the question, is it authoritative? Was it a letter that was sent to tell the church what to do? Was it prophetic? That is, not just predictive, but was it a message from God? You know, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by will of man. The holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Men who were moved by the Holy Spirit to write down these words, and they were authoritative. Is it authentic? How does one now compare with what one knows from other revealed letters? You look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you look at his letter to the Colossians, and it's obvious the same person wrote both of those letters. Was it received as an inspired book by the early church? You just think for just a moment... If you lived in Corinth in the first century, and here is one of Paul's fellow workers or one of Paul's students, and he brings with you, he says, I've got copies of the letter that he sent to Colossae, the letter that he sent to Philippi, and the letter that he sent to Philemon. I picked that up at Colossae, by the way. And here they are. These are inspired letters. Okay, well, let's put those together. Did the church accept those? And that's the way the canon began to be developed. Jesus and the apostles indicated when they quoted the Old Testament that this was scripture that came from God. Remember 2 Timothy 3.15? And from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God so as those people quoted Scripture, they recognized it to be authoritative and to be from God. 
we must conclude that while there were inspired documents that were written and not preserved, God's providential protection saw that they were ne- what was necessary for man was kept, what was not necessary was not. Let me mention to you, because I think some people need to understand, there were some books that were written or some letters that were written that were not preserved. I'll give you two illustrations. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul said, I wrote to you in my epistle. That implies there was a letter before this one. This is what we call 1 Corinthians. So there's something before 1 Corinthians. Colossians 4, verse 16. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. You mean Paul wrote another letter to the Laodiceans? Yes, he did. We don't have that one. But I have to trust that the providence of God was superintending this just like he was the inspiration to see that we got everything that we needed. Now very quickly, I want to talk about translation. The implication has been left in the Da Vinci Code as well as in that quote from the book of or Newsweek magazine <clears throat> that you can't trust your translation. That you can't look at it and say, well, maybe it actually says something different in the original and that you just didn't get that. Let me point out to you that translation has been a necessary fact since the Tower of Babel. Since the time that languages were confused... If someone wanted to communicate to someone else in a different language, there had to be a translation take place. I'll give you a good biblical illustration. In the days of Artaxerxes, also Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in the Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. I want to ask you a question. Did Artaxerxes know what these men said? Well, sure they did. Sure he did, as it was translated to him. When Artaxerxes responded and the messages sent back, did they know what Artaxerxes was saying? Absolutely. I've been in other countries, and I've heard people gibber, and I didn't have a clue what they were saying. But then someone who knew both languages was able to tell me exactly what was said. Let me ask you, the, the statement here, was it authoritative if Artaxerxes wrote in the Aramaic script and yet they spoke in Hebrew? Absolutely it was. In John chapter 1, verses 41 and 42, we learn that the word Messiah is translated the Christ. Or... Cephas is stone. When Jesus was crucified in John 19, verse 20, and Pilate had it put over the head of Jesus on a plaque, it said, the king of the Jews, but he had it written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Said the same thing, just said it in different languages. An accurate translation is just as authoritative as one that is in the original. 
There's numerous translations that were done early. The Septuagint I've already alluded to, the Syriac, the Coptic, and the Latin Vulgate. In fact, that actually became the official translation of the Catholic Church. The translation does not lose the text authority. If someone in another language commands you to stop and you are not told that in English, you're told in another language, but then someone translates, does that still have its same authority? It certainly does. There's been several attempts to put the Bible in English. I can't list them all for you. I'll list some of the major ones. John Wycliffe in 1388 translated the English from the Vulgate. Um, William Tyndale in 1526, first mass printing that took place. Miles Coverdale in 1535, the Geneva Bible in 1560, the Bishop's Bible in 1568, the King James or Authorized Translation in 1611. You move on to more modern times. I know it doesn't seem as modern now, but the English Revised Version in 1881, which became the American Standard in 1901, the Revised Standard in 1952, the New English Bible in 1970, the NIV, which some people call the nearly inspired version uh, because of the looseness of its translation. 1978 was redone again in 2011. The New King James was done in 1982. The English Standard in 2001. And I will point out to you that most of these translations try to go from the original language to convey to our language what is being said. It's difficult to put it word for word because Greek word order and Hebrew word order is totally different from English. And if you were to read it exactly in word order, you'd probably not understand much of what is said. And so it's smoothed out for our method. of. And then you have to deal with idioms, uh, the various things that are used to say something. Like, for instance, the phrase we use, you're pulling my leg, means you're joking with me. If you have an idiom in Scripture, then uh, do you translate the idiom or do you translate it literally? It's difficult. I prefer Bibles that are much more literal and then let me figure out what the idiom should be. Some of them are a little loose. I'm not a big fan of the NIV. I'm not really a big fan of the ESV either. I don't think either one of them are as literal as they ought to be. I use the American Standard for many years. It's difficult to obtain these days and much more difficult for modern people to read because of the word order. But you have to recognize that most of them still convey the same idea from the original language to our language today. Now here's the bottom line. Critics have come and critics have gone. But God's word has remained, it's been tried, it's been tested, and it's been proved. 1 Peter 2, verses 24 and 20, or chapter 1, 24 and 25, the grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And so what do we have now? You don't have a question. Can you trust your Bible? Absolutely. The challenge for us is to do what we know that it says. And so 
the world today that tries to weaken and challenge your faith, do exactly with them like Eve ought to have done with the serpent. Do as Jesus did with Peter in Matthew 16. Get behind me, Satan. We have to make sure that we trust and follow what God's Word says. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, we'd love to encourage you to be obedient to the gospel because you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Because you are willing to repent of your sins and confess your faith in Him, be baptized. We'd love to assist you in doing that. If you're a Christian you need prayers, we'll pray with you. And we invite you to come as together we stand and sing.